Thanks, Dan. And uh, hey, if you're a child, you can slide out uh, with our Redemption Kids volunteers. If you're new and you've got a kid and, and you haven't checked in with the Redemption Kids, just follow our workers as they slide out in the back and they will get you squared away. Uh, for the rest of us, let's grab a copy of God's Word and let's turn to Genesis in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. My name is John Chastine, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill Church. And what we're doing today, we're on the back end of our summer series that we've called 39, where we've had various sermons preaching through the Old Testament. And uh, today is part two of a two-part sermon. Um, last week, um, I, I covered the first part of the story of the Old Testament, and today I'm going to cover the rest of the Old Testament. So if you're new, hang tight. I'm going to catch everybody up to speed on everything and get us all squared away. But first, I want to remind everybody the why. Like, why are these two sermons important? Why am I covering the entire Old Testament in two sermons? Well, uh, when I was a kid and growing up, I was taught how to, use, how to study the Bible using the coma method. Anybody ever heard of coma? That reckon some of you hands there. It's, it's a simple way of studying the Bible that, that walks through four words. Coma stands for context, observation, meaning, and application. And so as you read through the Bible, you're first asking, what's the context? And you do that before going to the observation, the meaning, and then application. Well, think about this. The context... When you think about any particular verse in the Bible, you start with where it's at in the Bible. Um, so it would be the paragraph that it's in or the chapter that it's in, but you don't stop there. You keep expanding the context from there to how does it fit into the book that it's in. If it's, a, if it's a, an author that's written multiple books, you might even say, how does it fit in with all of the works this one author's written? Um, you might step back and say, how does this fit into the Old Testament or the New Testament? But eventually, you step back and you say, how does it fit within the grand story of what God is doing from Genesis to Revelation? So the why and what we're after here is I'm helping give you a framework for thinking about the larger context that every individual verse fits in in the Bible. And so the goal of these two weeks also, to use an analogy that I mentioned last week, is thinking about being able to parachute in to any part of the Bible and before jumping in, getting your bearings. That's the goal. We want to be able to ask questions like, what is the story? Where is this passage in the story? Where am I in the story? How does this passage contribute to the larger story and fit in to that story? And then finally, what am I to do in light of the story? So briefly, here's what I want to do. I want to recap last week. Some of you might have missed that. I'm going to do it in just a minute or two. Here's where we've been. But last week, what I introduced is the Bible as a part of a six-act drama. The six acts are this. Creation, fall, Israel, the church, sorry, Jesus, the church, new creation. Last week, we covered Acts 1 and 2. Today, we're going to cover Act 3. But here's what we looked at last week in Act 1. In Act 1, it's creation where God establishes his 
kingdom. And we saw this, God is the author of creation. And as a result, that makes him king of creation. He has the right to tell us what his creation is for. We saw this, humans are the climax of creation. Day six, created in the image of God. And then we looked at this, that rest is the goal of creation. That, we, that God created us to enter into day seven rest and we would live with him and enjoy him forever. But, act two, the fall. In the fall, we see rebellion in the kingdom. This is in Genesis three. The serpent is Satan, the great deceiver. He, dis- he tempts Eve, Adam and Eve, and we see them rebel and reject God as king to become their own king. They eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God responds in judgment. Instead of the blessing of chapter one, where we see these relationships, man and God, with each other in creation, we saw them flourishing. Now we see instead of blessing, we see curse. God curses the serpent. God curses the man, the woman, and creation as a result of their sin. You see, when they chose to reject God as king, sin spread like a virus, and it infected this whole creation. But judgment wasn't the end of the story. God showed mercy and grace. In particular, we looked at a verse in Genesis 3.15 where God says, I'm going to put enmity between the offspring of of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And there's going to be an offspring of the woman who is going to bruise or crush the head of the serpent. And so this this act two ends us with a question. Who is going to be the offspring that is going to reverse the effects of the fall? And so at the end of act two, what we have is God's people have been banished from God's place. And his presence because they've rejected his rule and they face his curse. But death isn't the end of the story. When we see God showing mercy and grace, we look to see how he is going to be faithful to provide this. Now, before jumping into Act 3, I want to ask a few questions here that I didn't press in last week. The first one is this. How many times could Adam and Eve have sinned before they face God's judgment. What do we see in the text? Once. Now just highlight that, because I think some of us can think about, well, as long as my good outweighs my bad, well, I'm going to tip the scales and I will escape the judgment. But what we see here from the very beginning is that God demands perfect obedience. That's what he demanded from Adam and Eve. The second thing that I want to ask you is who is this promise of restoration and reversal for? Because in a second, we're about to talk about Israel. And we're going to ask, how does Israel fit into the larger story of what God is doing? But before we get to Israel, we've got to see here, at the beginning of creation, Adam and Eve, this promise is for all. There's no Israel yet. It's Adam and Eve. So the promise of reversal and getting back to the garden is not just for Israel. Israel is a piece of that, but it is for all of God's creation. 
And so that leads us to the main point of Act 3, which we're going to cover today, and that's this. The king chooses Israel, initiating redemption. Now before I start unpacking that story, I want to just give us a flyby view of what's contained in Act 3, the rest of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is structured in our English Bibles this way. I think we got it on the screen here. The structure is you see the law, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you have historical narrative, Joshua, all the way ending with Esther. And you could go to your table of contents in your Bible and you could see this. You could see the law, you could see the historical narrative books. Then you have the poetry books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Um, And then you have the prophecy books going from Isaiah and then our English Bibles end with Malachi. Now, as we look at this, I'm gonna break down Act 3 with two scenes. The first scene is this. It's a people for the king. That's what we see in the law, Genesis to Deuteronomy. It's God choosing this people for the king that God has established. The second scene is going to be a land for his people. And the primary focus, as we're going to see in Joshua through the end, is that God bringing his people into the land so that he can, they can live underneath his kingship. One other caveat. I've still got 38 and three-quarters books of the Old Testament to cover in the next 32 minutes. There are going to be some books of the Old Testament that I'm not even going to mention. I'm just being upfront with you. There's no way. My goal today, just to remind you, is I'm giving us a framework, the whole Old Testament, so that you could parachute into all the other individual books. All right, you guys ready to jump in? Let's do it. Scene one. A people for the king. We ended in Genesis um, chapter 3 with that promise of an offspring. And the rest of Genesis is asking this question, who is the offspring? So we leave the garden where Adam and Eve have been exiled out of. And you start seeing the, it, it tracing from Adam to Seth all the way down. The first character we hear about, main character, is Noah. Noah is where we hear about the story of the flood, and God makes a covenant with Noah. All right, I got to hit pause here. When you go through the Old Testament, what you're going to read about at times is something called a covenant. God makes covenants with his people. Covenants form the backbone of the meta narrative or the story of the Old Testament. Eventually, we're going to see Noah, we're going to see Abraham, Moses, David, and the new covenant. We're going to cover all those today. But what we see with Noah here is the flood, and we see God promising in this covenant to never again destroy the earth by a flood. And he gives a sign. When God instills a covenant, he always gives a sign. The sign of that was the rainbow. We keep tracing along the story, though. We go from Noah, and eventually we end up with Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. Let me give another caveat here. Since I'm covering the whole Old Testament, we're not sticking in one verse today. Here's what may be helpful. A lot of the key text I'm going to throw on the screen up here. I would say at times it'd be helpful for you to just be following and flying through in your Bibles. To me, I like seeing a physical Bible. It helps me get a grasp of the story. So in Genesis chapter 12, we see this covenant with Abraham that goes like this in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I could preach a whole sermon here, but I can't. But here's the point here. You see blessing and curse, a continual theme we're going to see in the Old Testament. But God has chosen Abraham. He's sending him to a land, but the purpose is that the world, he says all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham. And so what happens in Genesis is we keep going. We go from Abraham, who's next, to Isaac. And we see that this promise of an offspring, this promise of blessing goes from Abraham to Isaac. And then after Isaac, it goes to Jacob. Jacob's name is changed. What was his name changed to? Israel. Hey, if you're new to Jesus and Christianity, you're like, man, where's this Israel? This is where Israel comes from. That's where we get that. It comes from this guy, Jacob. He wrestles with God. God changes his name to Israel. And then Jacob has 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of, um, of Israel. We see that in Genesis 49, if you want to jump forward to Genesis 49. I told you, look, we're covering a ton. Man, we've already covered all of Genesis now. Here we go. Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, in verse 1, it says, Jacob called all his sons. He says, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what are going to happen in the days to come. He's looking ahead. He's looking past the immediate. He's saying, this is what God's going to do through you. And he goes through all of his sons, but one in particular sticks out. Judah. In Genesis 49, beginning in verse 8, he says this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. You ever heard this phrase? The lion of the tribe of Judah? Boom, there you go. It's right here. You read through Revelation and you're going to see this language come up. Jesus is from the, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. We see here that Judah of all the sons is going to be one where the obedience of the peoples are going to be to him. We even have language here that alludes to the fact that he's going to be a king. He's got a scepter, a ruler's staff in his hand. And so we end Genesis by asking who's the offspring? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, it's Judah. Judah is the one that God is going to bring about the great reversal and get us back into the garden. Now, what happens in the rest of the law? Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So God has chosen Judah as the one. Eventually, the people of God end up in Egypt. You may remember the story of Joseph. Joseph was one of... Um, Jacob's sons, who sold into slavery. But look, God is completely sovereign over this. J Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good because there was a famine coming. And in, in, in Egypt, God elevates Joseph to a place of power so that when the famine comes and um, Jacob and his sons go down to Egypt, who, who do they run into? They run into Joseph who provides for them. And so Israel basically ends up in Egypt. 
But here's what happens. The Pharaoh that had given favor to Joseph, he dies. And eventually the Israelites in Egypt are are put into slavery. And so God is going to bring them out of Egypt into his promised land. And so we read through Exodus, and we hear the story of the ten plagues. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, Pharaoh, let my people go. No, oh, oh, you you know that. So like ten times, Pharaoh, let my people go, let my people go. Eventually you have the Passover. Again, it's foreshadowing the one to come, the true Passover lamb. Jesus says that he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see all this is pointing forward to the the promised one that's going to reverse and get us back to the garden. We, we have the Passover. We have the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea. We see God's great hand and provision in leading them to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, we see how God has raised up Moses, and he, he establishes a covenant with Moses. Now, here's what, here's what this covenant with Moses is about. God's bringing this people, and he's bringing them to the land. And here's a consistent thing that we go back to. The people of God in the place of God under the blessing enjoying the presence of God. That's what we're after here. The people of God, God's chosen this people where he's going to bring blessing to the nations. But if they're going to be his people and they're going to receive his blessing, they've got to live a particular kind of way. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, his people, they follow his rules and his commands. To live in his land, they're going to submit to his kingship. It's the same way when he brings them to the promised land. And so God promises to bring them into the land and they would be his special people and in return, they're commanded to obey his law. The sign of the Mosaic covenant is the Sabbath. I've written a whole dissertation on that. That's another sermon, but I love to grab coffee and talk with you about it. He's bringing them into the promised land, which is like a new Eden almost. And in order to stay in the land, he requires perfect obedience. Here's some homework. Go read Deuteronomy 28, the very end of the law. And there's these two mountains. And you have one mountain that represents blessing and another one that represents cursing. And, and we already know what's going to happen because we've seen it's the same story repeating over. Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden and they were exiled. And the same thing's going to happen with Israel. They're not going to receive the blessing of God. They are going to rebel against God. They're going to reject God as king, and they're going to receive the cursing of God and be kicked out of the land. Now, let me just pause here, and I want to ask you this question. Hey, you guys hanging in there with me? Hey, we've almost covered five books. Hey, we're, we're doing good. What is the purpose of the law? You see, here's why the story's important. Because if we were to jump into some of the trees like dig into like the weeds of, of the law, we might, we might lose perspective on where we're headed. You see, where we're headed is God's going to provide a promised one who's going to reverse the effects of the fall and get us back to the garden. The law is not the solution. It was never intended to be the solution. The law was a pointer to point you to Jesus. It was to point you to the Messiah, the promised one. And as we read through the New Testament, we see what the law does. It reveals our sin, and in fact, it says it increases transgression. If you were to go study Genesis to Deuteronomy, you would see after Israel receives the law, they're actually more sinful. Like you have like comparative events before and after Mount Sinai, and it's, after, it's almost like after Mount Sinai, something tragic happens. They face one disaster after another. One scholar comments that the desert has become one vast burial ground for the nation. 
In fact, even as they're receiving the law, what are they doing? They're crafting an idol to worship. And so the people rebel against the Lord, and God condemns the entire generation except two people, Joshua and Caleb. He says, you're gonna, everybody was gonna die in the desert because they did not believe God and they rejected what God asked them to do. So scene one, when God gets a, a people for the king, it ends with the death of Moses outside of the land. Moses doesn't even step into the promised land and Joshua is there poised to lead Israel into the land of promise to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. But it ends with two lingering questions that I want you to wrestle with. Hang in here with me. Here's the first one. Once they enter the land, will they be faithful and prosper or will they disobey and be exiled? That's one question. We don't know the answer. We have, we have some gut inclinations there. The second one is this. Who's going to be the new Moses? Look how Deuteronomy ends. I love this. Deuteronomy chapter 34. I've got it on the screen here. Deuteronomy 34. Beginning in verse 10, it says this. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. The law, one of the first central books of the Old Testament, ends by looking forward, by asking the question, there has not arisen since Moses, someone like him. It's leading you to say, Who's coming that's like Moses? You're now looking for a new Moses. And when Jesus steps onto the scene, he is the new Moses. When you go and you look at the Sermon on the Mount, do you realize what's happening? He's saying that I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he goes just like Moses. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, Jesus is presenting himself as this promised one, the new Moses. So as you read through the Old Testament, as you read through the law, you're looking forward and you're asking, when's this new Moses gonna come? Scene one ends and we go to scene two. In scene two, this is what it's about. It's about now a land for his people. And this covers the section, the historical narrative books of the Old Testament. It starts in Joshua. Joshua, he leads Israel into the land and they have rest from all their enemies. You hear that? They go into the land and there's this consistent theme of rest. Now, again, I can't press in here, but when you, when you obey God, when you follow him, you enjoy his blessing and you enjoy his rest. They saw that under Joshua. But when we go to Judges, Judges, after Joshua dies, the Lord raises up Judges to lead Israel. And when you go through the book of Judges, do you know what you're going to, a consistent frame, you're going to hear, phrase you're going to hear over and over, and it goes something like this. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then you're going to hear, and this was evil in the sight of the Lord. Like you just go read, oh, it's almost in every chapter. And, and they did what was, evil, what was right in their own eyes. An echo back to who? Who did we look at last week that did what was right in their own eyes? 
Eve, she saw that the tree was good for food. And yet Genesis 1 and 2 tells us God alone is the one who sees and tells us what is good and what is evil. Wisdom is submitting to God as king, not deciding in our own eyes. And look, our world does this all the time. Like, I don't want to just fly through the Old Testament and, like, miss the point. Like, every single one of us wrestle with this. We want to be our own king. We want to do what's right on our own eyes. We don't want to submit to the kingship of God. And that's the message of the Old Testament. That's the message of Israel. Israel, they reject God as king. And as we go through Judges and get to 1 Samuel, it becomes pretty apparent that Israel's rejected God as king over them and wants a king to judge them like all the nations. Von Roberts in God's Big Picture says this, they want a king instead of God rather than a king under God. Give us a king like the nations, not somebody that would submit to God, but that would replace God. And so you know what he does? God says, all right, Samuel, let them have their way. So who do they choose as king? They choose Saul. But do you know who God chooses as king? God chooses David, a man after God's own heart. And we see this covenant that God makes with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. We see it on the screen here. This is, this is what God says to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We're looking for a new Moses. We're looking for an offspring of Abraham. We're now looking for somebody from David. David is from the tribe of Judah, who was gonna be a king, and he was gonna rule forever. And the rest of this historical narrative, when you go through the Old Testament, is king after king. And so you, you read all these stories of these kings, and you're like, hey, is this the king? Now, we get our hopes up pretty early. Who's the king right after David? It's Solomon. What does the Bible tell us about Solomon? It tells us, first of all, it's like he, he's like one of the richest and greatest kings to ever live. And so we get our hopes up. He, he builds a magnificent temple. He dedicates the temple. The presence of God comes in the temple. Um, his reign at one point looked to be the fulfillment of this promise to David. But it comes to a tragic halt because he does what? He marries many foreign wives and begins to worship their gods. 1 Samuel, sorry, 1 Kings 11. And after Solomon, Solomon was like the high point of the kingdom in the Old Testament. From thereafter, it is a tragic descent towards exile. We read king after king. After Solomon, what happens actually is that the kingdom is divided. So let me give you some language that'll help you as you read the Old Testament. The kingdom after Solomon's divided, there's a civil war. And what happens is you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel. I know it's like wicked confusing, but the, the northern kingdom's called Israel. The southern kingdom's called Judah. So when you see the word Israel in the Old Testament, like you've got to discern, is this talking about like 
Israel as the united kingdom, or is this like Israel, the northern kingdom? Um, and then you see Judah, this is the southern kingdom. And so king after king, the hope of the Davidic covenant becomes even more faint until Israel, because of her idolatry, is exiled and scattered among the nations. Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. We see the northern kingdom, Israel is exiled in 722 BC. You can read about that in 2 Kings 17. The southern kingdom, Judah, is exiled in 586 BC. You can read about that in 2 Kings 25, but that was what God said would happen all the way back in Deuteronomy. So let me just hit pause here. I basically just covered a bunch of books right there, all right? We've ended almost the historical narrative of the Old Testament, and we've gone from them entering into the land to now being exiled out of the land. And when you go read the Old Testament and you hear the reason for the exile, one, you often hear the Sabbath come up related to it, but really at the heart of it's idolatry. They were chasing after their own gods and not submitting to God as their king. But that's not where the Old Testament ends. The Old Testament ends with hope. When we go from the exile to Jerusalem, this is, these are the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. When we read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we hear about Ezra. Ezra leads the rebuilding of the temple, and Nehemiah re leads the rebuilding of the walls. In one sense, Israel has returned from exile. But in another sense, they are still in exile. It becomes clear that this return is not the final fulfillment. Because when they return and they rebuild the temple, Jerusalem and the temple are far, are far less impressive than the one before under Solomon. Go read Ezra chapter 3. Actually, some of them weep. It's almost as if the older people who remember the old times are there, and it's a celebratory time. They've returned, but it's a, it's a bittersweet time because they realize this is not better than what we had under Solomon. Nehemiah ends with disappointment. If you were to go read Nehemiah 13, this is like one of the last chapters, the historical chapters we have in the Old Testament. It ends with disappointment over Israel's continued inability to keep God's law despite Ezra's efforts. So even after return, I mean, think about it. Israel knew if you don't keep God's law, you're going to be exiled. You're going to be kicked out of the land. And it happened. And now they're coming back. And, and the thought would be, well, if we're going to stay in the land and receive God's blessing and presence, we've got to keep the law. And yet again, they're right back where they've been. Now, I want to do a quick sidebar with you. And I briefly want to talk with you about the placement of Chronicles in the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible is structured different than our English Bibles. Here's what our English Bibles looked at. I think we looked at this already. You go the law, history, poetry, and prophecy. Our English Bibles, the last book in our English Bibles in the Old Testament is what? It's Malachi. But in the Hebrew Bible, this is the structure. It's the law, the prophets, and the writings. Now, again, this is another sermon or a coffee. I'd love to talk to you more 
about this. It starts the same way. The law is at the beginning. But what the Hebrew Bible does is you have this, this middle section, the prophets, which is Joshua to Malachi. And the writings actually ends with chronicles. So in our, and just, you guys, you got to focus with me here in a second. In our English Bibles, the last book is Malachi. Chronicles in our English Bibles, it goes first and second Chronicles, and then Ezra and Nehemiah. Is that the right histor- like historical order? Yes. Like Ezra and Nehemiah should follow first and second Chronicles. If you were to go and read it, second Chronicles ends with them going into exile. Ezra and Nehemiah is bringing them back to Jerusalem from exile. But in the Hebrew Bible, it flips it. In the Hebrew Bible, the whole Bible ends with Ezra Nehemiah, and then Chronicles. Is it just some funky order? I don't think so. Many scholars agree that with the Tanakh, the reason they call it the Tanakh, the TA stands for the Torah, the NA is for the Netubim, and then the Ketubim. So it forms Tanakh. With the Tanakh, concluding with Chronicles after Ezra and Nehemiah instead of vice versa, this suggests that even though the exile was over in a literal sense, Israel still remained in exile. God's kingdom has not come because God's king has not come. In fact, do you know what the very last words of the Hebrew Bible are? Go to 2 Chronicles 36. I don't have it on the screen. Sorry. 2 Chronicles, the last words of the Hebrew Bible, there's a proclamation to King Cyrus. And in your Bibles, you can probably see Ezra right after it. That proclamation is picked up in Ezra chapter 1. So it seems like a seamless transition. But remember, you're in the Hebrew Bible, so you've already read Ezra and Nehemiah. You know they've returned. The very, here's how the Hebrew Bible ends. Verse 23, thus says the king of Cyrus, the, of Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. The Hebrew Bible ends with these words, let him go up. By putting Chronicles at the end, it's looking past Ezra and Nehemiah to somebody who's going to Jerusalem to build God a house. That is King Jesus. But I've got to keep rolling. We've covered the historical narrative of the Old Testament. But what about the poetry and prophecy books? There's a large chunk of the Old Testament that I haven't even mentioned. Let me just be upfront with this. The poetry and prophecy books, for the most part, don't move the storyline of Scripture ahead. They kind of fit into the story. So I've kind of given you the full, the full width here. You now go and take all of these books, and you fit them within the story. It's kind of like in the New Testament. Where, you, where do you see the storyline? You see it in the Gospels and Acts right? And then what do you do with all of Paul's letters? Well, you go kind of fit them in to the story of Acts. That's the same way in the Old Testament. They're giving um, 
commentary, theological commentary and reflection on the story. And I primarily want to talk about the prophets. In the prophets, we see two consistent themes. Judgment and hope. When we think of judgment, they speak again and again and condemn Israel's idolatry. I mean, think of some of these. You, 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 know, you think of Elijah and Elisha that you, you read about in the historical narratives, but then you go and think about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. You go through all of the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, like all those, uh, most of them, like you can take this framework. It's judgment. Israel, you've rejected God as king. You're running after idols. Repent. If you don't repent, judgment is coming. You're going to be exiled. But all of them also speak about hope. They remind Israel of God's promises and how one day he's going to send his anointed one, the Christ, to reverse the effects of the fall. Here's, what, here's some echoing language you read about in the prophets. You read about a new exodus. You read about a new covenant. You read about a new nation, a new Jerusalem, a new temple, a new king, and a new creation. I can't look at all of it this morning. But go read the prophets. You're going to hear this. Judgment and hope. The new covenant we read about in Jeremiah 31. And as I land the plane this morning, I want to invite the band. You guys come on up. This is where I want to close. I want to close reflecting on their main promise of the new covenant and what implication does that have on your life today. We see this in Jeremiah chapter 31. In Jeremiah chapter 31, I've got it up here. This is what one of the prophets writes about. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. You know what the consistent message and theme of the Old Testament is? It's Israel's inability to please God. And you know what? Each and every one of us face the same predicament. None of us measure up to the perfect obedience that God requires. Adam and Eve, they rebelled once and they faced exile. Israel repeatedly was given chances. They rebelled against God, and they faced exile. You and I have sinned. We've chased after idolatries. We've rejected God as king to be our own kings, and we are separated from God. The only hope of, re of returning to the garden is the promise of the new covenant. And it's this it's God sending his promised one, 
When you go to Matthew, it introduces the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the king that says the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. He is the one who says, unless you are born again, you will never enter into the kingdom of God. And what does that mean? It means this. It means God to put a new heart in you. The problem isn't the law. The problem is all of our hearts are spiritually dead, and we need the life of God to be put in us. And that happens when we fall on our knees and we say, I'm going to reject myself as king, and I'm going to submit to God as my king. I'm going to look to Jesus, the perfect Passover lamb, who died to pay the penalty for my sin, and who puts his Holy Spirit in me and gives me new life so that I can follow him. This is the hope of the new covenant, and this is fulfilled in Jesus. Will you come to him today? The message of the Old Testament leaves you with this question Who is the Christ? Who is the King? He is the way. Will you trust him? Will you walk in him? This message is for all of us, it's for the world. God chose Israel, initiating redemption, so that the nations may worship. You and I can worship. I'm not, I'm not a Jew. I'm a Gentile. God chose Israel that Jesus might come and bring the message of God, the gospel to us. I invite you today to cling and trust in Jesus and walk in him and enjoy his presence, his hope, for the new creation that's still to come. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you for your word. God, I know we covered a lot today. But God, I pray, pray you would humble us to see our own sin, our own inability to keep your commands, but yet the power through Christ in me when I sing for me to live as Christ, I realize that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in me, giving me new life and walking with me day by day to help me follow your commands. I need you more and more. God, I pray, God, help us stay and cling close to Jesus. He is our hope. He is our power. He is our King. And we pray, Lord, would you bring about the new creation? We long for return to the garden. We want to enjoy forever your perfect peace and rest and relationship. We want to enjoy a creation where there's no more death and pain and brokenness and suffering. God, our hope is in Christ. You're going to bring that. And God, until that day comes, God, we want to be faithful. God, help us. We pray. In Christ's name, amen.